Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Troy Noons is an Absolute Podcast. Uh, with me this week, Kevin Wall and the avatar of Andy Pregler. It's uh, it's another another week of the podcast and uh, another week of Syracuse soccer winning. And uh, I think uh, think think we're think we're doing okay today, guys. What do you think? Better than we were twenty four hours ago. <laughs> this is true. The 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 timbre around uh, the Syracuse fan base. From eight o'clock on Saturday night to eight o'clock on Sunday night is very, very different. <laughs> just a bit, just a bit. I was telling uh, Steve that uh, pre-show, my day on Saturday was mostly spent in a car driving across Pennsylvania to New York City, uh, so I completely missed the men's basketball game. And my phone blew up and I had like 50 missed text messages about the game. And so when we got back, we, my wife and I went out to dinner and I came home to the second quarter of the BC Syracuse game. And then I was exhausted and I stayed up until the third quarter when BC scored to make it 17 to 6. And I basically at that point cashed out my losses and said, screw this, I'm going to bed. And everything changed <laughs> since that sleep yeah at no. that moment you went to bed i was about to shut off comments on every story that we had <laughs> and make people search for a place to complain i was uh, like how many how many pages back will i have to go to stop new comments yeah yeah so if anyone didn't uh didn't watch the uh mess of syracuse athletics that were everything before about 10 o'clock last night uh, Syracuse somehow got into a slap fest, got uh, what Jim Beheim has dubbed their best player, ejected from the game, and lost to Bryant on a last second buzzer beater by the Saint, or not on a last second buzzer beater, but a game winning possession uh, on or from the same guy who hit a last second second buzzer beater to end the first half against Bryant. Um, you would think after he did that they would guard him, you know, whatever. Uh, defense is overrated. We are Syracuse. So they, yeah. there was that. I don't know where. I don't know where do we want to dive first. Do we want to go into the good stuff of Syracuse soccer? Do we want good to go stuff. into the good, good stuff of football or the Met? You know what? Let's yeah. Let's start with the good stuff, and then we'll hit the in between stuff with football, and then finish with the the vegetables. Yeah, I I also like that. In this is just continuing the era of the podcast basically making basketball the back you know the, the back end of every podcast because we'd rather talk about other things however in this this year this season we are incredibly justified to do so um and so since kevin is here we start with the olympic sports although since steve is here you knew that it was going to be talking about soccer anyways uh syracuse men's soccer is on to the i don't think they call it the elite eight but they're on to the elite eight of the college cup Defeating Cornell one nothing. There, uh, Kevin, I know you were watching the the yep. uh, for those that were not in the central New York New York region today. It was absolute crap weather, and that was reflected in the game. If you were able to watch, it, it was probably better in person, if only because the ESPN feed at multiple times was unwatchable due to the content due to the accumulation of rain on the camera, um, but. Uh, I think, you know, 
Kevin, we, we start with you and your thoughts on just it is every soccer game that a stereotypical person thinks of when they think of soccer. It was messy. It was dirty. It looked like it was going to end in regulation at nil nil. Um, but yeah. Syracuse found a way as they have all season long. And on a nicer goal than I thought it would be. I thought it would be some sort of slop. You know, like the goalie falls down in the mud on a cross and it gets, you know, hit in by a defender for an own goal or some some just awful mess. And it turned out to be quite a, a pretty counterattack that, that Syracuse had to, to net the game winner. Yeah, absolutely. And General Leibold's been doing that all year, running that flank. Um, to get that outlet from Shealy after he made a solid save, um, you know, uh, corrals that, sends it to Shield or to uh, to Leibold, who just blows past one defender, like makes makes one defender literally fall down, bodies his way out of the other, very reminiscent of Levante Johnson's goal. Uh, I want to say ACC tournament, uh, where he yeah. kind of uh, did the the smart hook. Uh, it look it made it look like he was falling down and uncontrolled but still slotted at home past him, and it was just a beautiful finish. Uh, I was I was actually over near the old concession stand uh, for that one. We did the, the first half on the hill, the second half over there, and um, it it looked as pretty in person as I'm sure it looked on the feed. Like That was a great end-to-end effort and uh, capped off a, a game that Syracuse deserved to win, but oftentimes was coming up just a little short. I know, um, uh, I can't remember his last name, but... Uh, Cornell's keeper was, uh, he, he had a match. He was standing on his head on a couple of saves and looked pretty solid. Yeah, and that free kick, I think it was Kaloff in the first half yep. where he went short side around the wall and just missed. Uh, yeah. Had the keeper beat. But, uh, yeah, it was, uh, you know, if people weren't watching, it's it's probably worth catching the replay and watch ESPN. And next Saturday, I believe, I saw, Saturday at 2, is Vermont. Um, okay. Yeah. I don't know if you guys saw that. Can confirm. But. No, we knew it was either going to be Friday or Saturday. I don't think we were able to. Uh, when Andy and I were prepping, we uh, we we didn't come up with a solid date. But uh, yeah, Saturday too would be great. Um, hopefully the rain dies down by then, and they can repair. I don't know how bad it looked on the uh, on the um, feed, but the away end's keeper box, like where the hill is, it was a mud pit. Uh, yeah, the other end near, yeah, the the end over near Ensley didn't look nearly as bad, but that was that was definitely impressive down there. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I the or, I was gonna say I think that there's a lot of people who were saying that this could be the you know the Vermont game being at home will be huge since obviously Syracuse drew with Vermont up in Burlington, uh, but that I on camera the the pitch looked like it went through hell and you know. Shout out to the Syracuse groundskeeping staff across all the facilities, but they've got their work cut out to like make that field ready by next week. Just looking at the weather forecast and everything, yeah. I'm not a hundred percent sure that this is going to be the ideal weather scenario to, re- to fully repair uh, the pitch in time. Yeah, and I mean the the main body of the pitch seemed like it was okay. It was just that the ends got a little beat up. You know, uh, you you get a lot of traffic down there from corners and whatnot, so. Um, overall, I think it probably should be okay, and we should be able to uh, should be able to host another game. It is funny that this uh, postseason has turned into the Syracuse Revenge Tour, though. Uh, knocked off yeah. Virginia again in the or knocked off Virginia, the one of the two teams to beat them in the ACC tournament. Knocked off Cornell today. Now facing UVM, who they drew. Uh, it's it's turned into a nice little 
nice little revenge tour. So, um, got a little revenge tour. Yeah, you can't beat it. Uh, the the college cup. Is there going to be an apology letter this time around? Uh, no, because I can't pen one like the uh, the the maestro who tends to pen them can. Uh, <laughs> so the um, the college cup right now is is a bit of a a bit of a mess, I believe, as far as the actual yeah. bracket. Um, the well, actually, Andy, since we saw this, uh, things have gone final. Pittsburgh beat number one Kentucky two one. <laughs> So the top half of the bracket is unranked Pittsburgh, unranked Portland, unranked Vermont, and number three Syracuse. Uh, the bottom half is currently underway. Two of the matches are currently underway, but it's Duke and Creighton facing off, and then the winners of Stanford, UNC, Greensboro, and Indiana Marshall. So there's a whole lot of what going on in the uh, in the tournament right now. Uh, if you have an elite eight with only one to uh, maximum of four seeded teams left. I think there's a bit of parody in this, uh, in this league. I was gonna, I was gonna look and see it. I think it would be hilarious if obviously Syracuse has a tough test against Vermont. Um, and if no guarantee that Pitt even beats Portland, but if Syracuse's road to the final, you know, to the final, was Penn, Cornell, Vermont, and Pitt. Like that is that is like a mad lib of of teams, and that is not the order that I would have expected to face those teams. Um, and it's just funny. I don't. I when was the last time that Syracuse has played Pitt in soccer? Because they didn't play them this year. And Two to my ago. recollection, it's the COVID season. Uh, I believe that is right. Um, they unless they played them on the road last year, they didn't play them because I know I didn't see them. Um. Yep, they played them on the road yeah. last year. Uh, they were number sixteen. They lost in double overtime. Uh, and that pit team lost. Revenge lost, tour. They lost a lot. Yeah. Uh, going from that year to this year, but it seems like they're finding form towards the end here. So, um, it's it's going to be a weird one. I know. You know, UVM knocked off UCLA three nil, who had just beaten uh, Clemson, uh, ACC's finest. Well, besides Syracuse. Um. Yeah, UCLA knocked off Clemson. Vermont just walked them, um, and also took off num- took out number eleven SMU three to two. So it's it's a wild and wacky wild and wacky world out there for college soccer at this point. Um, Portland beat a directional Michigan to make their game. So yeah, it, it's who knows what's going to happen. But uh, one way or another, we're hoping that uh, they can take out. UVM this week and end up at the College Cup in Cary, North Carolina, because currently their track record this year in Cary is pretty solid, seeing they won the ACC tournament there. Right. Syracuse needs to figure out this week how to get extra bleachers behind the goal near Ensley yeah. and pack more students in. Yeah, either behind the goal yeah. near Ensley or, I mean, we've talked about it before, Kevin, like how they can find some way to expand another stand on the other side or any of that. Right. And that's it's pretty tight on that the practice field over there, so it's probably unlikely. But you know, there's got to be some way to get some more seating around that place. I mean, you have a program like this, and if you don't figure out a way to expand, you run the risk of some other program snatching your coaching staff. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, with the money thrown around, and we talk about you know everybody focuses on football and basketball and the money that these schools are spending, the trickle down in the Big Ten and the SEC for Olympic sports coaches. And 
staff budgets is another area where you're going to see that. And um, not saying that Mac's in a rush to, to leave town, but at some point someone's going to come across with an offer and the facilities and the stadium to, to really you know blow them away or blow other members of the staff away. If Syracuse isn't making, you know, efforts to, to push forward and that, I know you, you can question whether or not it can be profitable or whatnot, but I think you've seen how the community, especially the students, rally around this team, um, how the team promotes themselves. And I think, you know, playing next weekend with students back on campus, it's going to be a mob and it's going to be raucous uh, environment yeah. and it should be a lot of fun. You know, yeah, it should be a lot of fun. There were a good number that came back today, but it wasn't nearly, you know, it was it was few and far between. It wasn't like the hill was packed. It wasn't like it's uh, when it is when it is a full atmosphere, how um you know, how like you said, raucous that that whole section can get. So it's uh yeah, I guess two o'clock on Saturday we'll find out. So does that mean uh does that mean we get to eat our uh I, I guess if we hit the meat already, we got the potatoes next? Before we get the asparagus, that sounds about right. That, yeah. that would describe circus football, like the, yeah, potato. the potatoes. Yeah, that sounds about right. So. Yeah. <laughs> Pray, will you still there? I mean, yeah, no, I'm I'm still here. I I I think that the funny the funny part to me is that. Syracuse is basically the opposite of Turkey. They they lulled you to sleep and then they really hit you. So I don't really know what the food equivalent of that is, but. They're they're whatever uh, you think is pretty boring, and then you know either after you've taken a few bites or or two hours later suddenly becomes a, a lot more interesting. <laughs> hmm. uh, th- this last game was like the dessert, and it hits you at the end. You get that sugar rush. Yeah, you know, you had the big yeah. meal, you lulled to sleep in the middle, and then at the end you rallied around something something with a lot of sugar. Yeah, so we took a five I mean, and five and three quarters game nap, and then woke up. Yeah, hey, you know, and we ended up at seven and five, and like, if we were sitting here at the end of August before kickoff, and we were like, "Hey, fast forward at the end of the season, Syracuse is seven and five, we'd probably be dancing around." And there's no yeah. way you would lead off this podcast with anything but, "Hey, football was seven and five, and um, oh, four, and, you know, four and four in the big in the East, in the ACC, you know." Um, which is, you know, rare uh, since joining the league to, to be yeah. even 500. So, yeah. Uh, but getting there was certainly not uh, smooth sailing. And uh, well, that's I guess that's the thing. It wasn't smooth sailing, but it was the it, literally the chartered course that everybody had picked out. Yep. The whole thing was designed around, hey, we're going to lose the middle chunk of this schedule. And it might right. be most of the middle chunk of the schedule. Yep. And I mean, but I know I- in my six and six prediction, I had. I think I had us dropping one of the non-cons and beating Florida State, but it was effectively the yeah. same same situation. Yeah. yeah, but we had we had joked about this that that would be the most Syracuse thing to have happen, um, and I think it's I, I think this is a uh, I was trying to explain this to to somebody, uh, but the I think it was uh, for those who watch Rick and Morty, uh, you thirty second spoiler warning here, but they have a bit in the most recent uh, episode where the the antithesis to uh story and meta is sports because sports is just randomness and unpredictability and so i was explaining that it's actually that's really well done because the way that we try to cover the sport is adding narratives post hoc 
to the results and instead of just kind of understanding that sometimes this is just a random number generator especially when you're at the collegiate level um and what happened was everybody going there's no way that they can lose six games in a row without looking at what the actual body of those six games were and we tried to find ways to break that narrative up but when the reality was steve like you said the odds were always more likely that they would lose six in a row than they would find a way to pull one of those games out. And we almost did pull some of those games out. It just wasn't the games that anybody expected us to be close in. But at the end of the day, the Orange finish at a record that a lot of people said should buy Dino Babers at minimum another year of of unwavering support. And I think that if you go around, like there were people... Somewhere during, and again, there are reasons for this, like that go beyond football. But there were people tweeting during the middle of that football game that uh, Beheim, Babers, and Wildhack should all get fired. Yeah. Uh, so that the, the the reality of where people think that we are and where we actually are are two completely different planets at this point, and it is incredibly frustrating as somebody who's trying to like tell some kind of story or narrative about this team and about this program. Well, and we'll stick on the, the Babers thing for, for the time being, but we may, may later, we may revisit the other two uh, that you mentioned. <laughs> um, but you know, Babers, Babers, we're in a weird situation with Babers because he has one year left on his contract. He's got, his goal is to go out there and recruit, recruit kids to come play in his program that with a one year lame duck, you don't know if there's going to be a program. Well, we think two. We okay, think is two it two? Years. Okay. Because the rumor was that it was a $10 million buyout if he was fired this year. So right. basing on what we know about his salary from two years ago, we're assuming that that report would mean that he would be owed the final two years of his deal. So, okay. But still, like, I think you, your point, got, sorry, but your point is right. Yeah, no, it's, and that's the thing is like recruiting as a lame duck is just about impossible. Right. If your staff and your players don't know if they're going to be there in the next year, how do you bring kids in and confidently say, come play football for me or come play football for my guys when you don't know if when you come in, it's going to be those guys anymore. And that's something that the rest of the ACC can recruit against too. I mean, we're seeing that in basketball. Right. It is that, you know, Jim Beheim can go and he can tell recruits at the end, I'll be here. But, there's no guarantee. No one knows. It's all speculation. And then there's no, at least when Mike Hopkins was coaching waiting, you had something that you could right. sell a recruit of, I'm signing with the program and I know that this guy will be here. Right now, we don't know. We speculate. You know, I think it'll be an assistant coach. We don't know. And so to me, the, the decision for John Wildhack is how do you navigate both of these programs? How do you nav navigate the exit? And with Dino, I think it's, a different situation than Bayheim, who's kind of built up the, you know, cachet to call his own exit, you know, his own his own exit out there. But with Dino, like you said, like recruiting is an issue, and then your assistant coaches that you're trying to retain are an issue. And I don't know what Dino Baber's long term plans are, um, but I think it's up to John Wildhack to figure out how much longer he wants to coach and start to navigate that hey we can transition you into director of you know 
football, you know, a senior associate athletic director of football, like, you know, basically a general manager position, which a lot of schools are doing. And here's who we would like to have follow you. And if it's Tony White, great. Now you've got two years for Tony White to start to assume some of the things that a head coach will assume uh, to start to get some of that on the job training. If you're going to go with a first time head coach, give him the opportunity to, to kind of slowly build that in the way that we were doing with Mike Hopkins. Well, on another level to that, you start looking at these new bodies that you just brought in. And again, we're nobody's really done a ton of digging on what the story was between Anae and Beck coming as a package deal to Syracuse. Who really was the negotiator for those two? Was it Wild Hack? Was it Babers? Was it an alum connection? Was it a booster? We're we're still not 100% sure what the pitch was, other than there's clearly a bit of an Anae and Babers connection. But is Anae really at this point where he would be okay sticking around if he wasn't going to have a rise to a head coach level? Because he has been an assistant and a coordinator forever. Maybe he's fine with that. But again, that's another layer to that's another layer to navigate. And if he's fine being a coordinator forever, then what do you do with Beck, who's clearly Anae's prodigy, and at some point will want that coordinator position? So Again, it's great that Dino, and I think it's I think it's important that Syracuse went out and got these these names and are paying the money to to quality assistance. It just creates more, more difficulty and requires someone with a lot of foresight, organization, and ability to kind of read the landscape. Which none of those things were Wildhack's strengths when he was pitched as an athletic director, and there's not been any movement to the. To, to essentially say that he has learned those skills at a level to outmaneuver other ACC coaching staffs, let alone the national coaching landscape that is, you know, what Beck and Anae are clearly comfortable moving within. So here's the other, here's another layer to add to that. Uh, the Supposedly, Bronco Mendenhall is looking to get back into coaching after a year off. The Stanford job is open. Bronco Mendenhall is, you know, coming from Virginia where academics is a priority, is someone that would sort of fit that Stanford mold. Um, if he gets back into coaching, you know, the word is that he would call an A to be his OC again. So at that point, does Syracuse go to Beck to try and keep him from following and, you know, going back with Mendenhall and an A again by promoting him to OC? Do they work with him you know, behind the scenes to say, hey, you're on a two-year deal. When the two years are up, we want you to assume the offensive coordinator role. So stick around for one more year rather than jumping to some other job. Um, you know, it's the same thing with Tony White. You know, Tony White's name has not come up. You know, people were worried about Arizona State. They've got a new coach. You know, he, Tony White's not going back to Arizona State. But as this coaching carousel moves, Tulane's going to be looking for a head coach now. Cincinnati's going to be looking for a head coach now. You know, Florida Atlantic's looking for a head coach. So as the movement comes, Tony White's not going to a P5 job, but as those P5 jobs get filled by mid-major coaches, Tony White's certainly going to be a candidate in some of those places. So, you know, layers upon layers, and like you said, Andy, you know, this was not John Wildhack's forte in academics. However, as a VP at ESPN, you would think that he would have been involved in some of that talent acquisition and negotiation um, at that level. And so hopefully he would bring that skill set to this position and to look at creative ways to satisfy kind of the short-term needs 
of the individuals and the program, but also keeping an eye towards the long-term future and stability. One would think. One would think. One, One would, would hope. to think. Um, whether that happens or not, I mean, past, precedent, past being precedent at this point, I don't have the faith that that's the case. Um, yeah. And most likely, you know, on the basketball side, like you mentioned, it's probably going to be an internal hire. It's going to be a safe hire. It's going to be, you know, the most milk toast thing we can possibly do. Um, yeah. Which, is that the right move? I don't know. Is Do I think that's the right move? No. Um, I don't know if that statement made sense, but I think you get the point. Um, the uh, On the football side, like, it's it's weird because if you if you add the OC stuff to Beck, does that diminish some of the QB work he's doing or who does he bring in as a QB coach? Um, because I'm sure he's going to want to have a say in who's working in his QB room. Um, if he's got a guy, then yeah, try it. If not, then where, where does that leave the program or what do we do if that happens? And I mean, it's all hypotheticals in that, but the coaching carousel is a weird, weird fickle thing. Yeah. So the, I mean, the short answer, Steve, is that you do what other schools do. And, and the argument for keeping Babers and not paying the buyout is you run out of your staff. So if Beck's the OC, does he have a former quarterback who's looking to get into coaching? Like, mm-hmm. you know, um, I forget who all the quality assistants are on the staff. I think there's a Detmer there's, that's yeah, on there's, the staff. And I can't remember too. if he was a QB at BYU or not. But, like, these guys have now been coaching long enough that you're going to start to see the former players that are looking to get into coaching. So even if it's not a full-time QB coach, if Beck is still your QB coach and your OC, like, I think an A is tight ends, right? Yeah, it's that his position group is. Does he have someone, or can you spend the money to convince someone to come in and be your quality control person and be the guy that Beck wants on the day to day while he's handling? And so those are the things that like Syracuse would. And my biggest thing against the people that say fire Babers is that, you know, one paying ten million dollars is just for the rumored Babers buyout. Then you'd be buying out these assistant coaches. You'd have that gap period where you don't have a coach. So what's going to tie an assistant coach to even commit to stay to that point, knowing that the new coach might want a fully entire staff is that for a program like Syracuse, like you might want to bite the bullet and live with Dino's faults for another year. If you can hold on to the the pieces that obviously made a difference this year and anybody who says that they don't see a difference in the defense under Tony White and then the offense under Ane and Beck and the special teams under Legashevsky, like they haven't been paying attention to Syracuse football in the last 20 plus years. If they can't tell, you know, right. coaching matters. We agree on that. And so if you can keep that entire package together for one more year, then you can kind of figure out, all right, now where do we go from here? If he's heading into that lame duck year. Yeah. And I think one of the important things that you, that you really hit on there is this concept of like I, I think people have a misunderstanding of like loyalty and like what these contracts mean like this is up this was arguably the most competitive industry out there not just because of the lack of jobs or the scarcity of jobs and how hard it is to break through that wall to finally get a job 
but also in the standards that are exacted on them. Like, firing Babers is not just a condemnation on Babers. It's a condemnation on the entire coaching staff. And right. there's no reason for you as a assistant coach of any kind to stick with a university that has made a very public declaration in the case of paying millions of dollars to get rid of a guy saying that what you've done is not good enough. And that's when you start looking for a more stable situation that will afford you uh, a longer leash because of more years, because of a new guy that needs to get years dead because of money or whatever. And so it really does become the situation where if we turn it back onto the football team, we will go into this far more in depth in future weeks. But th this is a transitional period like we have not seen in a minute under Babers. This isn't just the quarterback, like uh, like what we saw when Dungey left. There are so many pieces of this roster that are turning over in a very significant way where there is not a clear line of succession for filling up that production. And that is not the situation. If, if you're going to change a coach in that period, you are actively saying, we are burning this down. We are ready for multiple seasons of not right. contending right. and and everything that Wildhack has said up to this point is that he wants a bull game every year and right. babers has now proven that with a team that is by all advanced stat metrics very mediocre he can get you a bowl game even with a very difficult schedule yeah right and the transfer portal changes things because like you said cincinnati found out that they're losing their coach today and players are already getting offers commitments are getting offers you know i'm sure all of yeah. their players that aren't officially in the portal are getting word of opportunities elsewhere and now they've got to navigate a two-week period where they've got to get ready for a bowl game hire a new staff and try and keep the players on their team good luck and they're going into the big 12 so they'll have a little bit better situation to hire the coach but if you fire a coach who's six you know even if he had been six and six who's got a bowl game and you're Syracuse, what does that say to coaches that you're trying to appeal to coming in? Like, what are the expectations uh, on me when you give me a four or five year deal? If you just fired this guy after a bowl season and Oh, by the way, he was ranked for four weeks. And that's uh, the fourth time since 2001 <laughs> that your school has been ranked. Yeah. And probably only. Favors has three of those that. years since wow. 2000. In 2019, look, they were they were ranked based on 2018, and then they weren't ranked after week two. We'll put that out there and acknowledge that, but never ranked under Marone, never ranked under Schaefer. We know that they weren't ranked under Greg Robinson, and you know that's just the reality of Syracuse football in in modern era. You know, and so I know his overall record's lousy, and and I write about it in a post on Monday. And acknowledging all those things, but is it really that bad when you look at the bigger picture? Right. And the, I don't, it's the, the definition of, I'm about to say something that I know is going to come off as bad, but I don't mean it this way. Like the commentary that we have that is calling for Baber's head, I believe is primarily the older contingent that... Okay also remembers the the heyday and i mean kevin you and i both vividly remember the 90s 
and the yep. the second heyday. Like these are these are all guys who remember the first or second heydays and aren't looking at two thousand to now and what's happened in the post Dwight Freeney era, I yep. guess is the, the best way to put it. And many of them are the same people that wanted Coach P fired and now use him to say Coach P never had a you know, got fired after a six-win season, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, yes, but you were the ones calling for him to be fired back then too because what you saw on the field did not match your expectations of what Syracuse football should look like. Right, or may have been the same people that the first yep. how many years under Coach Mack? They were yeah. horrible. Yep. And then magically they turned it around in the mid-80s. Like, I think he got hired in, what, 82? I think it was 82 or 83. Yeah. Couple years after the dome opened, and then his first four or yeah. five years, there wasn't a single five hundred or better team. Right, and then they turned it around and went undefeated in eighty seven. And it's like I think eighty six was good, and then eighty seven was lightning yep. in a bottle, yep. and then it moved into him leaving, Pascaloni taking over, and the the heyday of the the nineties there too. Yeah. So yeah, I don't know um, to. To paraphrase a former Syracuse coach, is this a snowball that can catch fire, or are we uh, are, are we running you know the the little engine that could here? Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to sixty percent on hotels. So whether it's cousin Kevin's kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin, or Becky's bachelorette bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The good thing is we've got a lot of off-season football content that we might not have wondered if, how we would fill that time yeah. between roster turnover and these coaching discussions. Oh, also, to anyone listening, I apologize if the two statements I just made may have caused you to twinge or, like, snarf your food or something like that. It wasn't intentional. It just, you know, had to happen. It, it, it did need to happen. Um, yeah. So before we before we actually talk about the football game that took place oh, there. Because, yeah, we didn't actually get to the game. <laughs> yeah, we'll get to the game in a second. Uh, because we got to thank our fine friends at Home Field Apparel uh, for sponsoring this podcast, as always. Listen, if you were listening to this anytime uh, within the first 24 hours that uh, we drop it or you're watching live on Twitch, first off, thank you very much. We really appreciate the support. Secondly, Homefield Apparel is still running their Black Friday sale, which is going to run through Cyber Monday. If you use code Black Friday, uh, you get 20% off your entire order. That is the best deal that they're going to offer uh, on all of their fine vintage collegiate clothing across so many schools beyond just Syracuse. If you're watching on the Twitch, Kevin is repping the amazing University of Washington Husky hoodie um, that I just, I love anything with a dog on it. So obviously that's a great one. Um, but make sure that you use the promo code Black Friday, 20% off your entire order. If you are listening to this sometime later and they're no longer running any of their sales, remember you can use promo code Noons, N-U-N-E-S, for 10% off your first order. Uh, thank you again, Homefield Apparel, for being a sponsor of the show. We really love your shit, and uh, please keep making it. Uh, but in things that we do want to keep seeing made of, I would like to see more of the fourth quarter Syracuse offense uh, that came back against Boston College. Syracuse was losing this one 17-6 and then scored a bunch of unanswered points to score. 
Um, the bad part of this game was the part that I watched where we saw an offensive line that struggled and we saw Garrett Schrader do what he does when the offensive line struggles, which is not look at check down guys and try to scramble away and he's not healthy. And there were many times where he was clearly trying to explode out of the pocket and just couldn't and got wrapped up. Uh, but shockingly, a lot of those things went away in the fourth quarter and Syracuse was able to take advantage uh, Steve, as the offensive lineman masochist guru here, um, I think that there's Wait, do I get a, to put that a, in a, a business card. Yeah, actually, I think you should. That's okay. your new business. That is the new business card. Yeah. Um, I I think we have to talk about the Cruz situation where he was ejected right before half um, for basically punching a Boston College player allegedly. Oh, there's no the, basically. He was, like he he legit hauled off on the guy. Great. Um, I didn't know if he made contact. He definitely attempted to. Yeah, I don't know. You um, must not have seen the replay because, oh boy. Okay. Um, rumor, rumor, I, I don't want to rumor monger, but rumor has it the BC yes. player like spit at him or on him. And I was like, yeah. I, I guess they're, that's big enough to flip out about. But um, yeah. I, well, my, my whole thing, thing was, was like, that... what's that? No, I was going to say, my thing was we have had on the bingo card injuries knocking the line down yep. to a uh, not great thing. I did not have ejection on the bingo card for diving into the third stringers. Um, but when that happened, the offensive line definitely struggled in the third quarter. But the part of the reason why Syracuse was able to get back into this game, we'll talk about the defense in a hot second, but they were able to throw the ball downfield and Schrader had clean pockets. Um, I don't yep. know if you saw something in the second half that the offensive line improved upon or if BC just, just ran out of gas on their defensive pressure. Well, yeah, Dakota Davis wasn't a left guard. That was what changed. Um, when uh, they're right from the start, a lot of the issues that occurred were because of that. Um, the other thing that didn't happen was Max Mang wasn't forced to pass protect. Uh, if you look up PFF grades, it's pr it probably – it probably shows him at, I don't know, like a 20-ish. Let me actually look that up. Uh, it's not pretty, whatever it is. Yeah. Not pretty Either way, uh, while I'm looking that up, um, Josh Aloha came in at center and shifted. So this is the progression. We had the starters. The starting lineup was, uh, if I remember right, Bergeron, uh, Dakota Davis, Carlos Veterello, Chris Bleich, Enrique Cruz. Uh, or, um, Kalen Ellis was still sitting out with his injury that he re-aggravated last week. Uh, apparently he was ready to go because he came in later. When Cruz had his mishap, that shifted. Uh, they tried to shift Veterello out to right tackle, bring a Loa in. That didn't work all that great. They proceeded at one point, I believe, to bring Jacob Bradford in at guard. Uh, ultimately, they settled on... Um, oh, God, what happened? Did... Did Davis end up playing? No, Davis didn't end up playing tackle. They shifted someone out to tackle. Um, but, yeah. Okay, so maybe Aloha stayed in and Veterella shifted out to tackle. Yeah, because Cruz played 36 snaps. So they kept Aloha in, Veterella out to tackle, and then Kalen Ellis came back in uh, at the left guard for Dakota Davis, who only played 13 snaps on the day. Um Ellis in at left guard made things much smoother, much cleaner. Uh, unfortunately, at the end of the fourth, he also went down again. 
Thankfully, SU had enough points on the board where it didn't matter. Um, and I think that might have been when Jacob Bradford came in for him. Um, but either way, there was a lot of shuffling of the line, and they finally found a personnel package that worked and was able to keep Schrader clean in the pocket for long enough to get the ball off. Uh, there were a couple coverage sacks that I think anyone who's listened to the pod has heard my critique of Schrader and his inability to feel pressure. Um, once he feels it, he's very good at getting away from it, but he doesn't have nuance in the pocket all that well. Uh, strangely enough, Del Rio Wilson and prior during the spring game, at least Justin Lampson looked like they had much better pocket presence. Um, but again, conversation for the off season. And I'm sure Kevin's, uh, Kevin's all about that conversation. I know we were talking about it in the slack, but, um, but yeah, keeping Max Mang from pass blocking also helped things drastically because I finally was able to look it up. I was overestimating what they gave him. It was a 14.7 oh, no. on 25 oh, no. snaps, uh, 17 blocking attempts, his pet or, uh, let's see, five pass blocking attempts, 14.7. Not great, Bob. Not great. No, not at all. Did they make a shade of red for that score? Uh, yeah, it's just red. <laughs> Just really red. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so that happened. That was the thing. So if you want to know what happened on the offensive line, Andy, that's what happened. <laughs> the, the positive note was that Schrader seemed to spread the ball around a little bit more. Um, Very much so. And I, think that, and I think that helped. Obviously, BC's not a good team and not a great defense. Um that ball he threw to Alford for the long touchdown was, was right on the money in stride. Um, yeah. I thought the safety probably had the angle at first, but the ball was right there, so Alford didn't have to slow down a step and you know, kind of glided into the end zone. But it was good to see Cooper get involved. Obviously, yep. Gadsden had a big day. but Gadsden's um, touchdown that wasn't was a beautiful ball, too. Yeah. The one that got called back for holding. You know, and it, we as we talk about the team moving forward and, and it's developing these secondary weapons that are going to be key for the offense, uh, I think you mentioned, Steve, in the chat that they, they went quicker, you know, quicker throws, quicker yep. reads, you know, just you don't have to play up-tempo necessarily, but if you're having trouble on the line, if you're having trouble, you know, going through progressions, you know, to identify a, a hot read, a quick throw and get the ball out, you know, certainly slow down a pass rush, um, especially yeah. a team that's trying to protect a lead, you know? they. Well, that, that keeps you from being able to send people, too. If you have to, right. if your linebackers have to worry about that quick slant coming across the middle or somebody running a quick in or something like that that's coming across that space, that, do, that allows you to, or it, it keeps you from being able to send everybody. And that can only help out your offense. And it also gives your guys a rhythm. And, I mean, we've seen, you know, when when Schrader is feeling it, he's feeling it. And when he's not, he can be shaky. So like, why not put him in the best situation to feel the groove, you know, Jamaican bobsled style, feel the rhythm, feel the ride. (laughs) Well, I think the other, the other thing that I thought was, was good about this game was there was definitely a more concerted effort to get Sean Tucker touches. Um, There were plenty of plays that were, obviously designed for Sean Tucker to get the reception and Schrader either didn't make the full progression because of the aforementioned pressure issues or he was already kind of in tuck it and run mode. But there were plenty of runs designated for for Tucker 
And it also gave LaQuint Allen an opportunity to get some snaps in there as well. And I think that one of the big questions that I had going into this offseason is that Tucker is going to go pro. Um, and what happens next? And Allen looks more than up to the challenge. He showed he had that one run where he was dragging a BC guy behind him for five yards. And I think Allen always kind of struck me as more of a speed guy, but he's clearly just developing and he's got the opportunity to be the same combination of size and speed that Tucker does maybe a little bit less cutting and a little bit more head straight down. Um, but it was nice to see him continue to get more touches, continue to get the running game, getting more emphasized. And again, going back to what you guys were talking about being used as a counter punch to BC sending the house every play. Um, but the the real reason that Syracuse won this game was the defense. Um, a lot of those let's, key scores before, in, the, in the... Before we go there, let's stay on LaQuinn Allen for a minute. Because okay. you mentioned he, okay. he seems like the quick, speedy, you know, change of pace kind of guy. He's listed at six foot 195. That's only 10 pounds less than Tucker. And while he's yeah. not the man beast that Tucker is, like... Right. Tucker is a physical specimen. There are no, it's like when DC, <laughs> he just passed the other physical specimen we had in Delon Carter on the career rushing list. Um, but LaQuinn Allen is not a, a small human being and he can probably right. work himself into not, maybe not Tucker size, but like give him an off season. I mean, remember he's a true freshman. Give him an right. off season and like strength and conditioning great. with hopefully a different strength and strength and conditioning staff. And I don't know if we want to break into that, but um the yeah, not tonight. Yeah, not tonight. <laughs> that's that's a much longer conversation. But yeah. you give him an offseason of strength and conditioning, and he's he's probably more than up for the task. So. Yeah, I think that this the the thing with Allen is it's just that because he's next to Sean Tucker. You look at him like an 18-year-old, um, right. but he's an insanely good player. He, I think he was the New Jersey Player of the Year, and it's insane that, again, not to circle back to recruiting, he is the first name in the portal if Babers and A and Beck are gone, and that is a talent that everybody would immediately want on their roster because of what you've seen of him in the very short flashes of this season. And Lenora Sellers is also an immediate decommit if A and Beck go somewhere right. else. Yeah. yeah. Yes. But on the um, defense. I, you wanted to talk about the defense, Andy, and I think that, to me, the, the most frustrating part of the way the season went was people that we wanted to claim that the team quit. You know, from the Clemson second half, the team quit. The team quit on the Babers, the team quit on the coach. And, and or Babers lost the locker room, the any truth. of that. Yeah. Yeah, and the fourth quarter of that game showed you. I mean, Barlow Wax came in, dinged up, left the game. They're already down Michael Jones and Derek McDonald. So we were down three of the top four linebackers from the start of the season. And Wax could have easily just said, hey, I'm done too. I'm done. Like, there's no point in going back out there. And he, you know, he did. And, and you talk about leadership on the team and and him and Caleb Okachukwu with that play, hustle play to knock the ball down from more, you know, knock the ball from Moorhead, chasing him down. I mean, those are plays and effort that show you whether it's for the coach or not, that's a team that's playing for each other. And I think it's a disservice to a lot of people to say, oh, this team had no heart. We, we know they're injured. We know they're banged up. None of them are using, using it as excuses. And that effort that they put forth in the fourth quarter, you know, yes, it's a bad team. Yes, they should have probably dominated from the beginning. All those things, all those qualifiers you want to use. The fact that they 
weren't and they were struggling and everything was going against them and they still found a way to get it done in that fashion shows that there's a lot of heart on that team and I think uh, the defense certainly embodies that spirit that mob mentality of they could have given up so many times the way the offense failed and failed them um and you know they didn't and and so it's exciting to see them end the season in that manner yeah i think that the defense under tony white has definitively taken steps forward in a way that we at least i personally did not think the defense could move forward since marone um, and just the nature of college football nowadays, like unless you're a Georgia where you can recruit 11 to 16 NFL players every year on that side of the ball, it's very hard to build a unit that can actually like win you games. But this was definitively a game won by the defense. And I again, Kevin, you mentioned it, but like BC's not the best team in the world out there. Uh, but the defense held firm. They caused turnovers. They were... They they never quit on this game, and it allowed Syracuse to come from behind and win. And I felt like this is very fitting for a team where I know that the stats don't always bear it out, but I thought the defense was by far and away the best unit on the field uh, holistically f- for the team. Well, it's funny. That second drive, it, or was that the first drive even, um, if Jihad Carter makes that pick six, what does this game look like? Right. Issues on the front foot. Everything's ch- completely changed. Like it, it, it it's funny. It, it well, you, you guys will appreciate this. It reminds me of the uh, actually the first Canada game in the World Cup, where if <laughs> uh, Alfonso Davies slots home that penalty, and yep. uh, they score first, it changes the whole face of the game against Belgium. And I felt yep. very similar with this, where it was like that ball goes it, like stays in his hands, and he's you know, streaking to the end zone in Chestnut Hill deflates the crowd deflates BC. And, you know, we're, we're playing a very different ball game. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. It, and that's the, when you don't have the talent, like it's those little things. Um, and those one play here or there turns the complexion of the game. And, and for this Syracuse team playing, from the lead is a, a role that they're much better suited for because of mostly because of the defense and, and the issues that we talked about with the offensive side of the ball. Yeah. Which they seem to find out or figure out in the fourth quarter um, for, I don't even think we mentioned uh, the orange scored 26 unanswered points in the fourth quarter. Uh, BC scored a quick 13 to open the quarter and then yep. didn't score again for the rest of the game. And SU just, you know, score three and out, score turnover, score. Like, okay, guess guess we're winning now. I don't know how this happened, but like I was literally sitting here typing up the game recap and I'm just like, I I don't even I don't even know what to write right now. It's just right. like this is crazy. Cause it, it, for anyone who doesn't know how the sausage is made, a lot of times we're pre-writing a lot of this stuff. And, you know, I had to change things multiple times while I was writing to revise like, Oh, Syracuse is going to win this game. Okay. That's fine. Let me rewrite this entire article in five minutes. So they, yeah, they put on a show. Yes. Um, another didn't put on a show. Right. <laughs> oh, Kevin, you beat me to it. You beat me to it. 
I am sure there's some people listening and they're like, they're 45 minutes in and they're going to get to basketball or what? <laughs> if they're listening well, to us, they know that the way this season has gone, basketball always comes last. Yeah. Ugh. One and two on the week sounds bad. One and two, the way it happened is worse somehow. Um, because I don't, depending on your lens and depending on your optimism, you can look at what happened at the Barclays Center as either Syracuse lost or Syracuse went split a series of really tough games against tricky opposition. They probably should have beaten St. John's and gone 2-0. Um, if you want to have the more pessimistic lens, Syracuse struggled to put away <laughs> Syracuse struggled to put away another barely uh, top 100 Ken Palm team and then continued to uh, not take advantage of opportunities that a much better St. John's team gave them. Um, and that lack of closing reared its head again later in the week against Bryant, Slapfest aside. Um, this team is just not playing in a manner that leads you to believe that they can win very many basketball games against competitive teams. And again, uh, Kevin... I, I'm just curious. I know that you've been kind of on more on the front lines than Steve and I with a lot of this basketball stuff, but just again, I'm approaching a lot of this from a from a data perspective. But you look at you look at shot quality, you look at Ken Palm, you look at whatever advanced metrics you want to look at. Like the Syracuse team is a value of has talent. It's just that the way that this talent is being played, executing, it's it's just not there. It right. And even the games that the games this week, like Judah Mintz was incredible against St. John's, especially in the first half. He takes a lot of tough two point shots. Chris Bell takes a lot of tough two point shots. Um, Betty Williams takes a lot of mid range jumpers. Like Joe Girard launches from 25 feet like it was a five foot shot. And they're not good shots. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Christian's thing about feeding Jesse Edwards and to you know Jesse has to be smarter and stay on the court but this team does not operate in the manner it should which is feed the ball to your seven footer on the post and move to open spots and let him kick it out to you for Whoa. better shots hold on Kevin you can you can move yeah. off the ball you're you allowed to do that in basketball you can pass you can you can pass the ball in basketball too. Holy Multiple shit. times, even on a possession. This like, is... It doesn't have to be one and then shoot. This is a thing. It's crazy. I know. It, it's a thing, and so many other teams actually do it. It's, it's, I, it's and wild. usually against us. It's funny how that happens. <laughs> you would think that we might pick up on that. And and look, there are some there are some young players in this team, and, and there are some flashes. And I think Syracuse will will get a big win at some point because there's enough talent to put it together. But they should have finished this week 3-0, and we'd be talking about a team building momentum headed on a road trip from hell in late November, early December, which is at Illinois and at Notre Dame. That's this week. <laughs> and so... <laughs> I'm yeah. in danger. <laughs> yeah, we're in big danger because this is an Illinois team that is ranked 10th, I believe, right now. So we'll see where they are when the polls come out tomorrow. Um, that is big and strong. <laughs> And uh, kind of looks like a nightmare matchup for Syracuse, who may or may not have Judah Mintz if there's any subsequent discipline, uh, you know, from his yeah, slap. If, if that wasn't appeal, uh, Muna, then he's gone. Muna, uh, Hema didn't play 
after looking great in the Barclays Center, didn't play yesterday. Uh, Benny Williams was sick. Uh, so this depth that people talked about, we ended up with John Bolajak for like 27 minutes yesterday um, and Peter Carey. And sometimes they were on the court together, which meant that Syracuse played offense three on five. And that's really hard to do in basketball. <laughs> and I know Joe Girard had a terrible game, but when there are two guys on the court that the other team doesn't have to pay any attention to unless you're standing literally at the rim, it makes it hard for your shooters to get open because they can simply go, oh, hey, Joe Girard, we're not going to let him touch the ball. One of these other guys do it. And, you know, I don't want to go any further without mentioning Justin Taylor's incredible game, 25 points, came, you know, guy didn't get off the bench in the Barclays Center, thrown out there like, hey, go do something, kid. And he, you know, did his best buddy Bayheim impression. He was hitting threes, he was getting rebounds, hitting mid-range shots, and single-handedly kept Syracuse in that game yesterday. And, it could have been a blowout. And at numerous points where they would pan to him, I I hadn't had a beer, and I thought I was drunk because I was like, that's buddy, that's not buddy. Like, he, he looks and has the same mannerisms as Buddy Bayheim. He's Buddy Bayheim who spent time in the weight room. Yeah, yeah. That sounds about exactly right. Yeah. He, he's a, he's much thicker uh, shoulders and yep. upper body. And so at IMG last year, he must have just shot baskets and done push-ups and yeah. bench. Uh, also, Kadir yeah. Copeland is the best bench hype guy you could possibly ask for. Every time something happens, he is the first guy jumping up. He is the first, he's like, he's the pure hype man. He probably could have been more valuable on the court last night. You would but, think. But, <laughs> but yeah, he, he, um, that's... The last night's game is about perplexing Jim Beheim rotations. You thought it was weird when Dino Babers didn't give Sean Tucker the ball at Clemson. I, I have no idea what Jim Beheim was doing with his lineups because he was playing guys that, and obviously if you're down a couple players, that makes sense. But Malik Brown, who had seen minutes in every game and has been effective, was behind Sean Bolajak and Peter Carey. And, and Peter Carey could potentially be a solid player. But at this point, he didn't play high school basketball last year because of a torn ACL. He's not a five. He's not ready for this game. And the fact that he was thrown out there and asked to defend the middle, you saw in that last shot, he's just a little too slow you know, to react to the ball coming down the lane with one second left to leave his defender and to really contest the shot. And I just don't know what Beheim was doing trying to ride those two together. I, I it was baffling. Samir Torrance was kind of in and out. Uh, Copeland really didn't see a lot of time, you know, and Brown, nothing. And so it was just, it was just really strange. His, his bench rotation and usage, maybe not having half his assistant coaches (laughs) there to tell him like, Hey, this isn't working was an issue. I don't know, but it'll be interesting to see this week who plays because at this point, I don't know what to expect. Right, because who else was it? Just Red that got kicked, and Griffin. Okay, and Pete Corin, um, Corin Santini, Corintini. So it was literally Beheim. It was Beheim and McNamara, G-Mac. and that was it. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Now Bryant actually great, great, like, great audition for the GMAC should be the head coach crowd. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, it's just you know, and Bryant came into the game and I thought it would be close because Bryant can shoot. They were shooting 45% from three. 
um, and they can't defend. And yesterday they shot 25% from three. But Antoine and Walker was having like a they day. Played good defense. So <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, it, this game's really interesting. I think Illinois is a really tough matchup. Notre Dame is Notre Dame. Um, with the added bonus that instead of a bunch of white guys that make three-pointers, they have J.J. Starling from Baldwinsville, mm-hmm. who, you know, went to Notre Dame, and him versus Judah Mintz is going to be an interesting matchup for Syracuse fans, and so um, it'll be fun to watch. Um, I think Mintz has been... I, I shudder to think of what this team would look like if Mintz hadn't switched from Pitt to Syracuse right now, because yeah. as Jim Jayheim said, and you alluded to earlier, he is the best player, and it's not even close. Now, did Gerard I mean, cringe when he said that? <laughs> did what? He said, did Gerard cr- cringe when Beheim said that or whenever, wherever <laughs> I, he was listening I, from? I mean, hopefully he recognizes the fact that, like, yeah, yeah, that's probably right. He might be right about that. I, I, mean, I mean, when you shoot 2 like... 22 in your last two games, like, you probably can't say a heck of a lot. Yeah. Yeah. He one. I'm looking at this box score now, and this this reads like a call. This reads like a Syracuse Mad Libs. Like Gerard one for one for twelve from the field. Uh, Jesse Edwards with twenty one rebounds. Uh, like again, and we already talked to you. You mentioned the Justin Taylor twenty five points. I, it's this team doesn't have to me. There's a clear recipe for success, and they obviously aren't doing it. Um, but to take it one step further, like we, this team would, in my mind, would have been primed actually for one of those go abroad, go to Canada and play a bunch of teams road trips just to yeah. get extra reps in because um, the, we we had talked from the get go in the off season about how the beginning of the schedule was not kind. Um, so obviously the road trip from hell is this week. Um, the week after that, you have Oakland, which should be a win and. Then Georgetown comes to a, in a to the dome, and Georgetown has proven it doesn't matter how bad or good either of those teams are. Georgetown is going to give the Orange a fight, um, right. and then from there they have Monmouth and Cornell, who have two teams that have proven that they can upset Power Five teams. And then you're in ACC play, uh, so there's not a whole lot of opportunities for this team to get into a rhythm and figure things out. They they basically needed to figure things out coming into this week. And I feel like we're coming out of it more confused than we were even before the season started. Right. I mean, you have Bell who can, you know, do okay things on the offensive floor and then is allergic to rebounding. Um, yes. It mildly boggles my mind that a, what, six, nine forward is averaging 0.8 rebounds per game. Not great. Yeah. Um, no. <laughs> and not great in the zone when you're going to get a lot of those long kicks to the side or whatever. Um, yeah, I don't know the, the, this whole, uh, I was talking to some people this weekend and like this whole team is just an enigma. Like you almost, you almost lose to a two and three Richmond team. And then the next night make a comeback towards the end and almost, you know, upset a St. John's team. And then whatever happened last night happens. And you're like, I don't. I don't know what this team is or how this team, I don't know how this team is. I, that's, that's so, the, the weirdest way I can put it. This team could be a foundation for a strong team in two to three years. Like this is the kind of group that you build around like a good solid college basketball team. The problem with that is that 
you've got two fourth year guys, three fourth year guys among your top six. So when everybody's like, this team's super young, well, no, Duke starts five freshmen, Syracuse starts two seniors, and their sixth man is a senior. <laughs> like, you know, experience plays a part of it, but the question is like, this is getting late early because the ACC looks like even hotter garbage than it was last year. Um, Florida State hasn't won a game. North Carolina lost twice this week. Duke lost. Um, other than Virginia, like the ACC is not impressing anyone in non-conference, which means when you start to look at, oh, well, we upset Duke at home and we beat Boston College and Pitt and um, Georgia Tech and Florida State, like those wins won't mean anything when all those teams are ranked in like 75 to 125 in Ken Palm. Yeah, I mean, even... Uh, Bayham's doppelganger, Larinaga, is what six and one, but they're only they're only lost being to number twenty three Maryland, where they got walked off the floor. Yeah, and they beat USF today by like a point or something. I mean, like yeah. BC is four and two, but BC lost to Maine. Uh, they beat Rhode Island by four. They won. They beat Detroit Mercy by a point. Like th- these teams are not good. Um, it's just tricky. I mean, I know people want to be patient with a young team. Like this week, I really think they got to split. They got to win one of these games. If not, they're going to be digging themselves a bigger hole than last year's team dug themselves trying to get out. And and a lot of it is going to fall on Jesse Edwards. Like he has to be on the floor, and he has to be a guy that can play thirty four to thirty six minutes a game. He's got to stop reaching. Some of these fouls, yeah, they might not be a lot of contact. But he makes it easy for officials. Like he's just, he's got the Marek Dolajai one over the back on the offensive boards per game, you know, and it's usually on something where it's 12 feet away from the basket where he's not trying to go over someone to dunk it. Like he, it's just, he's got to give up a layup from time to time and not take these fouls because without him on the floor, it just shrinks the court. There, there isn't another inside scorer. Um, and if he's out there, he opens up a lot for Mintz. And as Mintz gets going, it'll open up Joe Girard for the role he was born to play. And whether he wants to accept it or not is the third or fourth option who can kill a team when you leave him open and he drifts you know, a few feet away from his defender and catches and launches a three before anyone can react. That's where he's lethal. That is where he would make this team uh, a good team. He would be that guy. Um Asking him to be the Buddy Beheim and take, be your leader in shots per game is a recipe for sitting around 500. You'll get the games like at Richmond where he gets hot and he hits 31, and then you'll get games where he can't hit anything. And in the last two games, he wasn't even close on a lot of shots. And then it affects his entire game. His passing is terrible. His decision making is awful. His closeouts on defense are even worse than normal. When he makes shots, he's really engaged and he's. You know, that game, what was it, Monday night against Richmond or Tuesday night? He was electric. Yeah. Like, there was no other way to describe it. Like, he was he was like GMAC, and, you know, he was hitting things. He was fired up. He was in passing lanes. He was all over the court. The last two weeks, and even yesterday, he threw a ball away where he went to get the ball with Syracuse in the lead, dribbled himself into a, tra- into a trap at the sideline in midcourt, and then lofted a lazy pass that got picked off, and then he jogged back and watched a guy dunk to take the lead and it just it can't have it does that raise the question though do you do you make a move do you start samir or somebody else and bring gerard in heat check him and if he's not on just send him 
I think you start him and you see how he plays. But just I think you check you gotta, him right off the bat and give him the quick hook, the the, the pad and behind quick you hook. You got to look at the hook. Yeah, I think you know you also got to get him out because sometimes when you get him out, you you clear his head and you you like get him grounded as to like what's open and you know yesterday right. Bryant came out from the outset and we're like we're gonna guard you everywhere you go, even if you go to the concession stand for a dome dog, we're sending a guy out to stand next to you so that you can't catch and shoot, and he kind of like didn't know how to respond. And then when he did get the ball, it was like, well, here's my shot. I got to take it. And, and instead of letting, you know, pulling the defender out and saying, okay, well, we're going to go four and four. Cause now Judah Mintz can operate and Jesse Edwards can operate. You know, he kind of just walked around and, and it just didn't create the spacing that needs to. And some of that's the staff and yeah. some of that is they're, they're limited in options. But I think Taylor showed now like, Hey, if Joe isn't going to give you stuff, then Taylor can stand next to Mintz. And he can do a lot of the same things that you want Joe to do, except handle the ball. Um, but you've got options now. You've got Samir, you've got Copeland. You know, Jim Beheim. we heard all this talk about depth. Like, you can't then just turn around and go, well, I'm going to ride these guys 36 minutes no matter what. Right. Well, you can, because yeah. it's Jim Beheim. But... <laughs> you can, but you then have to understand when things don't work out, like, there's a reason for that. So um, this is not... And now I go back to it is like, well, you can't have players of this caliber averaging more minutes than Carmelo Anthony did at Syracuse and try to tell me like it's warranted. That yeah. is, I have it's never like, thought of it, it that way. And that is the best way you could possibly put it. <laughs> that wow. Like if yeah. Carmelo Anthony had played 34 minutes a game, like then you should not put, you cannot tell me that you're more valuable to a team. <laughs> right. Yeah, Joe Girard has done many good things. Carmelo Anthony, he is not. And I think it's unfair to him because I think he's a more effective player if you keep him at that, you know, around 30. And maybe you stretch right. him some of those nights where he is on fire. Well, it keeps his legs fresh, too. you can't possibly take him off the floor, but... Because we've seen, we've seen late in games where he just, you know, normally, yes, you know, for all of his defensive whatever, uh, late in games, it can get worse because... yeah. You can't when you can't move when your legs are just lead weights because you've run for 34, 35 minutes. It's like, okay, like this is not a great look, especially when the, you have no. pertinent people to sub in. Yeah, the, the, the situation is not ideal, and it's not going, like we said, like you said, Kevin, this is this week is really kind of the pressure test because Illinois is exactly the kind of team that Syracuse shouldn't be able to hang with and if that is validated we know that this team has a very clear like last year this team has a very clear ceiling and that ceiling is not going to meet the standards of syracuse basketball um and that conversation for next week could potentially really burn the place down so isn't that what we specialize in yeah well, again, tune in next week to see what happens. But for now, that is a extra special edition of Torians is an Absolute Podcast with Kevin. Uh, thanks for jumping on, Kevin. We really appreciate it. Uh, yeah, and when the boss when the boss comes on, we're allowed to go long. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so for everybody who's tuned into this, got your basketball talk. Thank you so much. Um, if you're listening to this on your podcast provider of choice, make sure you rate us, review us, and subscribe. Help us trick the AI into expanding the Ottoman Empire all across the interwebs. If you are watching this on Twitch Live, thank you so much. We do this every Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern-ish. 
Uh, and uh, if you are watching this or listening to this on newsmagician.com, thank you for coming back to the site every week. We really do appreciate the support. It means the world to us. Uh, for everybody at News Magician, uh, for everybody who spent time watching the basketball to get to the soccer and the football, uh, go Orange. Go Orange.